Take a copy of God's Word and turn to the New Testament. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 14. In the bulletin it says, verses 12 through 24. I'm going to read verses 1 through 24. So instead of page 874, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack, turn to page 873. It will become apparent why we're going to do uh, read those passages here in a moment. But we're going to really focus the concent, uh, and concentrate on verses 15 through 24, the parable of the great banquet. Now, this is similar to a parable in Matthew chapter 22, uh, the parable of the wedding feast. But it is certainly a different parable. There are some similarities, but there's more that is not in common. And we could spend five or ten minutes or so pointing those things out. I just bring that to your attention. You can go back and look at them in context. Particularly, what is different is the occasion. We are told specifically a certain occasion that Jesus is giving these discourses, that this conversation is happening between Jesus and some Pharisees. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is an invited guest at the Pharisees' table. On each occasion, Jesus has this knack for making things really uncomfortable for his host. He challenges their social conventions. He challenges their moral expectations. He challenges their spiritual presuppositions. Here in this passage, you see him speak to both the fellow guest at the dinner table as well as the host himself before coming to the culmination of what he wants to say to this dinner party in verses 15 through 24. Before I read God's word, let's ask for his help in prayer. Please pray with me again. Heavenly Father, shine on us by your word. May we not walk in spiritual blindness. Keep us from willfully seeking darkness. Keep us from lulling our minds to sleep with the things and cares of this life. Instead, we ask that we be renewed by your word. And to that end, we ask for your Spirit's help to hear, comprehend, and apply your word to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 through verse 24. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told the parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. 
And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. I have to be sensitive and cautious to protect my relationship to you as one of the pastors here at URC in the congregation. And one of the ways I need to be careful is with my table etiquette, I've learned that maybe if I'm meeting a church member for lunch, it's not the best idea to go with buffalo wings. There's no polite way to eat buffalo wings. And I'm not sure if many of you are ready to see one of your pastors indulge in some delicious, spicy buffalo wings dipped in blue cheese dressing, just... Anyways, I could go on and on. I have learned that 30 spicy garlic buffalo wings at lunch doesn't make for a real productive afternoon either. As we read Luke chapter 14 and other occasions where Jesus is eating with these Pharisees, you may question Jesus' table etiquette. It seems pretty rude to his guests, possibly. I mean, as we read it, I told you, he rebukes the other guests, he rebukes the host. 
And basically, in verse 24, he looks at everyone and says, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. What a delightful Sunday afternoon brunch with Jesus. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. Jesus most likely has been traveling, preaching, and teaching, and it's the common custom that the social and religious elites in a community, when a rabbi and preacher was coming through town, they would bring him in for a meal. But the meal was intended to be an extended examination of the teacher. They wanted to know what he thought about controversial matters and what he thought about what they thought was most important. And so this was the opportunity that Jesus was invited to. It really really wasn't to enjoy a meal with them, is that he was to be grilled. As Ralph Davis memorably put it, they were having preacher for dinner. And this is what is happening. But the table is turned on the host and the other guests, isn't it? Where instead of Jesus being examined, their hearts are exposed. And we see that here in Luke 14. And particularly, Jesus has a very poignant message in the parable of the great banquet. So I got four headings for us as we outline this passage. In verse 15, we need to just take a moment and consider the theological context of the parable. Understanding that Jesus is there to be examined and he is there intentionally to teach something, there's a bigger doctrinal, biblical conversation that they are entering into in this parable. And then in verses 16 through 20, Jesus gives a direct warning in the parable to his host and the other guests. Verses 21 through 23, there's an invitation in this parable. And then there's a clear lesson to be seen in verse 24 that we cannot pass up. So the theological context, the warning, the invitation, and the lesson. What is this theological context I'm referring to in verse 15? Well, Jesus is here again entering into what we could call a 700-year-old conversation for him at that point. A conversation that began not just decades ago, but centuries ago with the prophets. You notice Jesus has begun to press and pry at the dinner table, and it would seem that someone is ready to change the subject in verse 15. And so they say, hey, one of the things we want to talk about is the kingdom of God. And so someone blurts out in verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then the room falls silent as they wait for Jesus' reply. Kenneth Bailey gives a a sketch of what most likely they were hoping to hear Jesus say. They were hoping Jesus' response would be along the lines of, oh, that we may keep the law in a precise fashion so that we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all true believers at his banquet. That's what they were hoping Jesus would say. Jesus would affirm their presuppositions, their presumptions, if you would, that among Abraham's natural heirs, 
belonged the kingdom that was coming, but only those who were really serious about the Israelite religion and the law of God and his covenants would be there with the Messiah. Only those like this leader of the Pharisees and this lawyers who were there, those who were calling their neighbors to a higher standard, these would be the ones who belong at the banquet. But this isn't how the conversation began. This is where the Jews of Jesus' day took the conversation, but the conversation began in Isaiah 25 with some different notes being highlighted. So listen as I read Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will take away, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What was shocking to the Jews of Jesus' day was that Jesus came echoing this message in such a way that he was saying, it has arrived. And the kingdom is open beyond the doors of Israel. If you're reading through Luke's gospel consecutively, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus proclaimed, all people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. He's reiterating what Isaiah said in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. And we see that in his life, death, and resurrection, that in his commissioning of his disciples to the ends of the earth, that the kingdom is open to any who would come through Jesus. That it has arrived, is it a present reality, and it is coming. And sinners can come through his sacrifice and have a place at the table of God. In contrast, we have record of the Jews of Jesus' day taking this passage in Isaiah 25 and, for instance, in their Targums, which is like an expanded paraphrase on the Old Testament, reinterpreting some of the passages. For instance, in verse 7, it says that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, a day when God will remove the veil from the nations and hold out the Son as the Savior Many Jews in Jesus' day reinterpreted that verse to say that God was swallowing up the nations in wrath and that they wouldn't be there, that that was the final step towards the banquet. They explained it away. Jesus is now in this parable challenging 
their presumption. He wants to enter into a conversation about who is worthy and who is unworthy in the scope of God's saving arm. We need to understand that context to then see the parable in its light. Because when you and I see the parable, we may miss part of the warning. The immediate warning is that you don't make excuses when God calls, right? But there's more. There's a grave warning. And if we understand the theological conversation that's happening, we, we get a little more of what's going on here. Otherwise, the excuses that are made in verses 16 through 20, we may say, well, these are maybe decent excuses. Are they valid? We've got to back up and think about something. There's a significance to meals. That remains in our day, meals are significant. That we use them to mark occasions and celebrations, birthdays and weddings, graduations and other occasions. But in the first century, who you dined with was very important. To invite someone to your table was an, an invitation to friendship, to relationship. And also, similar to that in, in our day, it was a, meant to say, here's my people. Here are the ones that I associate with. Here are the ones that you could count me part of their social status, their place in society. We're, we're on the same we see it today, and uh, maybe students in the cafeteria wanting to sit in certain sections, be at certain tables with certain groups. We see it today, if you were to go down this week and grab lunch near the Capitol, that there are those in nice suits working at the Capitol doing pol political lunches there in the plain view of everyone wanting to be seen who they're with. Now, to be sure, there's other meals that take place at the Capitol that they don't want you to see and they don't want to be known, but there's still the look who I'm associated with. Jesus, R.T. France points out, Jesus' willingness to eat with and to accept invitations from both the respectable and the disgraceful the influential and the marginalized was one of his most striking traits. In many ways, he lived a walking parable describing what the kingdom was like. So we come to this parable, and there's two invites. Now, that's familiar to us as well, where you would maybe send out a save the date requesting an RSVP if you intend to join. But in Jesus' day, this was a more important practice because they didn't have the means of preserving the food. And so once you prepped it, it, it had to be consumed. And so it was a common practice that if you accepted the first invite, you marked your calendar and then waited for the invite for the moment the table was set, if you would. So you agreed and said, I will show up. I will be associated with you. I will let others know in the community that I am one who goes to your banquet table and you are one that goes to my banquet table. That we share table fellowship. And when that second invite came, there was never an excuse. See, sometimes in the parables, Jesus is using absurdity 
that is lost on us, but in his first audience, when they hear that all the people who agreed to the first invite all at once turned down the second one, there probably would have been an audible gasp. You don't do that. In an honor and shame culture, there's no way that you would say, yes, I'm coming, and so therefore they would have killed enough animals and prepared enough vegetables to set the table for the number of guests who RSVP'd for the event, and then you say, nah, changed my mind. That was unheard of. It would have been shocking. And that's part of Jesus' point, to, to arrest his hearers. And so then he goes and says, consider their excuses. They're not valid excuses. The first excuse, the man has bought a plot of land. Now, as it is today, there's not much great farmland in the Middle East. And to buy and sell would have been a very intense process. A lot of investigating, a lot of making sure that the land was able to produce. No one just happened upon a land and didn't do their due diligence and brought it and then said, oh, I should go check it out later. It's the equivalent of, in our day, we can buy a house over the internet. I've nearly done that. But it wasn't a matter of just, I saw an address and a price, and then I wrote a check. I still did my due diligence and read the, the specs and the square footage, the previous owner's history, and I sent my real estate agent to walk the house and then to live stream, talk, conversation, FaceTiming through the house with me. And I'm asking questions and I'm asking her to knock on walls and do things. And I'm saying, what does it smell like? Does it smell like cats? What's, what's going on in this house? Is this a good investment? What do you think? No one would buy a house sight unseen. And this is equivalent to the excuse that's given. And the man's basically saying, yeah, I, I said we were in a relationship, but this plot of land is more important to me. The second excuse, the man says, I've bought five oxen, which is a considerable investment. The amount of land that could have been worked with five oxen is at least two and a half times more than the average person's land. So it is a, a expensive purchase that he has just taken. And immediately you should think to yourself, why would someone buy five oxen at an expensive price and not knowing if they were any good? People didn't do that. They would test the oxen before buying them. In the marketplace, sometimes there was a field next door to the marketplace where you would bring the oxen, yoke them up, and make sure that they could plow together. I mean, if one had like one shorter leg than the other and he keeps pulling to the right or something like that, like you need to know that before you buy the oxen. Or maybe you would go out to the farmer's land and you would see the oxen in action and then make this purchase. This man says, I'm on my way to check these oxen I just bought. It's the equivalent of buying used cars without knowing anything about the cars and then just Venmoing the money for five used cars and say, hey, honey, I got five cars being delivered today to our house. Isn't that great news? And she's like, what kind? And you say, I don't know. Do they run? I don't know. Do they, do they have, does the heat work? No clue. We're going to find out. This man is saying, these oxen are more important to me than you. 
The third excuse may be the, the most challenging to really kind of understand what's happening. If any of them we would give a pass to, it would be the, the newlywed. who says, change my mind. Tonight, I need to stay home with my, my bride. First of all, no one would plan a banquet on the heels of a marriage ceremony, especially where there, there wouldn't be a conflict on the calendar. That in the community, you would allow the marriage ceremony and the, the days of feasting that would accompany that to go, and then at a later date, plan your banquet. And it's not a case in which, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that an, a man who was just married is exempted from military service for a year. That's a good exemption in the law of God. But this is a social occasion. It's not civil service that he is looking to get out of. Actually, what this man says is quite rude. It was inappropriate. When he says, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come, he is openly and publicly saying, we're going to do what husband and wives do. And this was considered crude and rude. In Jesus' day, you didn't publicly talk about what happens under the bridal canopy. And this man just states as a matter of fact and doesn't even ask for an excuse. The last excuse is also very poignant because it doesn't really tell as much about if this is a rich man or a poor man. The first two men were obviously of some means. This last man, it didn't matter. The excuses are unacceptable, but they're more than that. They're insulting. They're insulting, and intentionally so. It's a rejection of the master of the banquet. It's showing contempt for the host. Our excuse is not to participate in the life of the kingdom of God always seem reasonable to ourselves. We easily can recognize how non-valid others' excuses to participate in the kingdom of God are and give ourselves a pass. But we need to be pressed that our excuses are insulting to God. It's a serious offense. Any excuse that you or I would put forward for not submitting to the reign of God is insulting. It's a damnable offense. And maybe your tendency isn't to give the all-out excuse and just say, I'm not coming. We, we like to dress up our excuses a little bit softer, maybe, and say, I got to go check out this plot of land. I'll be a little late to the banquet, but I'm going to do both. I got, I got an important date night on the calendar. Ugh, messed up, but we'll try to fit in both. Or I'll catch you next time. Or these oxen, they're, look, they're not going to test themselves, but I'm going to do what I need to do, then save me a cup of coffee and dessert at the banquet. I plan to come. I'll be there. 
It's a warning against making excuses. It's a warning against the half-hearted disciple. That's where Jesus takes it in the, the rest of chapter 14. And he discusses the cost of discipleship. It's all or nothing with Jesus. Here's the warning in the parable. Be careful. Presumption can lead to bold rejection. Many presume their place in the kingdom of God in Jesus' day. And when he arrived, they end up boldly rejecting the kingdom. They boldly rejected the kingdom because it did not come to them on their terms and according to their expectations. Presumption leads to bold rejection. Helpfully, William Hendrickson sums it up this way. Thus also from the beginning unto now, ever so many people have offered alibis for refusing to accept from the heart and hand of God salvation full and free. They offer alibis for refusing to accept from the heart and hand of God salvation full and free. Because that's what Jesus goes on to explain in the parable. This is what those who received the first invitation and turned it away, this is what they're missing out on. This is the sort of kingdom that they are rejecting. And so in verses 21 through 23, the servant comes back and the master responds in anger. But what does he do with his anger? His anger is put towards a righteous use. And his anger, in a sense, is transformed into grace. And he says, my banquet will be filled. So Jesus tells the parable in such a way that then two successive invitations go out. And that the master is insisting on his home being filled. Is exalting the triumph of grace. In the first invite, there in verse 21 and following, he's told to go out quickly into the streets, the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those within the city limits. This would have been the outcasts within Israel. He's saying, go find those. Those who, because of their condition, are ritually unclean. Those who, in the parable that he told the host before, remember he said, don't just invite your, your, your friends who can repay you. Invite the blind, the lame, and the poor, and there will be a reward in heaven. Those who have nothing to return to the master, who cannot repay the favor, Invite those. Jesus is saying, go, give a gracious offer, expecting nothing in return. But then there's a prophetic edge to the second invitation that he tells them basically go out the city limits, go out to the hedges and the byways. And he is foretelling the day in which he would send out his apostles outside of the covenant community to the Gentiles, to those who are without God, without his word, without his law, and say, come through Jesus Christ and become part of God's covenant people. There is an invitation 
And what do these people share in common? They feel and know their unworthiness. The social standard was set. Who's worthy to go to a banquet? Those who, in turn, can repay the master for the the feast that they partook of. These folks know they have nothing to offer the master. And Jesus says, that's exactly what qualifies them to join me at the banquet. He is announcing that his reign is a reign of grace and that in his reign, the outcasts are no longer the outcasts but are brought into the table to feast with him. Jesus there tells the the man, the master, through the servant, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, through the, the ages, the church has got that phrase wrong on occasion. Uh, they've used force and violence to compel conversions. Exhibit A, the, the Spanish Inquisition, and there's many others that I'm sure you've heard from skeptics and, uh, and those who are opposed to the Christian religion pointing out, hey, this is all the harm that Christians have done in the name of God's kingdom. And we can say, no, that's not what Jesus meant when he said compel them in. Why would he say compel? It was that they know they don't belong at the banquet. And to hear this invitation, they say, not for me, not for me. And Jesus says, no, wear down their resistance. And if you would take them, if you would, by the hand and show them to their seat. And that's what Jesus does to sinners. Sinners who know they're unworthy, who know they have a debt against God, that they could never repay because of their sin, Jesus says, I've paid it. Come in. This morning, Christ compels you, sinner, to come to his table. He compels you. That is the invitation of the parable. Come and know his reign of grace. But that's not the only invitation in this parable. I think there's another invitation for the saints, for those who've already come in through the door of grace. There's an invitation to be inviters. There's an invitation to say, this is who my king is, come and meet him. There's an invitation to join in the joy of the servant who says, hey, I, I got him in from the alleys and the streets. And then Jesus says, we'll go even further. Let's fill this place. There's an invitation to join with the mission of God in our day. And we're to do so with gracious methods and persuasive methods that match the heart of the Savior displayed here. Do so with persuasive words. And what do I mean by that? We're not going to be able to answer everyone's objection. But know the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe that the blood of Jesus is the only blood shed for sinners. And be willing to say that. 
Know that no one has conquered sin, death, and the grave but Jesus alone and offer him. And look, everyone can take a deep breath and relax. At times, evangelism can be intimidating. We have the confidence that God works through his spirit in mysterious ways, drawing the elect from the north, from the south, from the east and the west, from all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. We have the confidence that he sends his servants to speak his word, and that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then we have the example, the picture here. Sometimes we imagine evangelism as like cold calling, knocking on doors, and just, do you, are you, do you know where you're going to go if you die tonight? Or someone on a street corner preaching and calling sinners to repentance. Those are good things. But a lot of evangelism happens between parents and kids sharing the gospel in the moments of correction and discipline. And a lot of evangelism happens between relationships, people just inviting a friend to church. Take a sigh of relief and maybe re-examine the way you approach evangelism and say, hey, this, this spring, as things melt and begin to thaw, we fire up the grill, we invite our neighbors over, and we sit down at a picnic table in our backyard, and we get to know them, and we invite them to church. See, hospitality is a Christian virtue, It's a Christian ministry to our community. Hospitality is not a means of grace. Hospitality is not evangelism, but it is a servant of the means of grace. And it is a servant of evangelism. Who is it that in the coming months or this week you can sit down with and begin a relationship over a meal knowing that your goal is to get them to this table right behind me? and see them join us at the Lord's Supper. There's two invitations. The invitation to the unworthy and the invitation to God's people to join in the mission of the king. Lastly, we close with verse 24, the lesson of the parable. In a striking way, the pronouns change in verse 24. It is as if Jesus does not want his hearers to miss the lesson he has for them. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's no longer the master, the master of the house speaking to his servant. It's now Jesus looking at those around the table. He says, They will not be. And did you hear it? My banquet. Being explicit, he's being clear. He is the Messiah. In his person, entrance into the kingdom of God has arrived. And if you do not come through him, you cannot come in. There is no other way to come in. There's a historical lesson. We see this play out in the first century, where many Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But not all. Jesus 
gathered the outcast of Israel to himself. Jesus even saved Pharisees like Paul and then sent them as apostles to the Gentiles, as an apostle. There's an ever-pressing lesson from here. Accept God's gracious invitation and do it now. Don't presume on tomorrow or the next day. See, this word of judgment implies a gracious invitation. As Jesus looks at those at the table and says, they're not going to be at my banquet, the point of the lesson is, but if you come through me, there's a seat for you. If you come declaring your worthiness, you're unwelcome. If you come knowing your unworthiness and you come through the Son, if you come hearing and trusting the invitation of the Master and come in His name, the feast of grace is for you. Come and eat. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Nothing in our hands we bring our great God, but simply to the cross of your son Jesus that we cling. We have we've been reminded in recent weeks of your wonderful grace of our exceeding sinfulness and how your grace overcomes our demerit and welcomes us into the family of God. May we be stirred afresh in our hearts to offer this grace to sinners and to do so with confidence that you receive any and all who come in the name of Jesus. So may we go out from this place in this new week as your ambassadors, boldly yet humbly, sincerely and passionately ambassadors of the message of reconciliation to the one true God through his son Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.